Take your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 110. We're going to read, we're still in our series, not for too much longer, but our series of Messianic Psalms. And this Psalm is, if if you're going to rank Messianic Psalms, I think Psalm 110 has to be up there at the top. So um, it's a privilege to get to preach it uh, to you this evening. Hear God's word. A Psalm of David. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In the final week of Jesus' life, if you have read the Gospels before, you know that he did a lot of talking. Uh, From the triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 21 until his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus was not only teaching his disciples and the crowds, uh, he was also interacting directly with the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, the lawyers of the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Uh, We read of him sometimes Uh, being asked questions by them, and then other times, he asking questions of them. In Matthew 22, we read how the Pharisees ask him if it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, and then the Sadducees ask Jesus, who will this woman be married to in the resurrection if she was married to seven brothers in a row here on earth? And then a lawyer asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? But then Jesus, after answering those questions, turns to the Jews, and he asked them this question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they give the answer that any Jewish schoolboy could have given you probably in their sleep. Well, of course, he's the son of David. And then Jesus, this is purely speculation, but you wonder if Jesus sort of cocked his head, kind of squinted, maybe rubbed his beard, kind of looked at him, said, huh, that's interesting. And that's not in the Bible. But this is in the Bible. He said, then how does David in the spirit say and call him Lord? Remember he says in Psalm 110, he doesn't say that, but he's, they know Psalm 110. He says, you remember, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And then Matthew gives us this wonderful commentary verse. He says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. What was Jesus doing in that little engagement there with the Jews? Well, of course, he was taking our text this evening, Psalm 110, and he was showing them that their understanding of the Christ, the Messiah, ultimately their understanding of him was woefully inadequate. They were correct as far as they went. Yes, indeed, the Christ was the son of David. 
But they didn't go far enough because they hadn't listened closely enough to David's words in Psalm 110. I hope we can listen well to David's teaching here in this glorious psalm. Who do you say that Jesus is? Perhaps your understanding of him is also lacking, is incomplete and inadequate. You've come to the right psalm. But maybe you've come to this psalm before and you've kind of scratched your head and you've read it and you've thought, this is a hard psalm, right? And some of the details, what in the world is David talking about? Some of these words and phrases are hard to interpret. They're hard even to understand what what it means. And and at certain points, it's not even clear to whom uh, David is speaking or of whom he is speaking. There's just some, some ambiguity in the words. But, but there is no question, right, as to who is speaking. Jesus tells us it's David by the Holy Spirit. If we had a time, we went over time, but you could have a whole sermon thinking about the inspiration of the Bible from Jesus' words there in Matthew 22. And he says, David, by the Holy Spirit, or in the Holy Spirit, says these words in Psalm 110. Here, David is speaking prophetically of his heir to come. David is speaking, and on this side of the incarnation, on this side of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, we know that David is speaking of Jesus, of Nazareth, the Christ. He's telling us who he is and what he came into this world to do. Now, if you are familiar with the New Testaments, you know that the, the early church was deeply impacted by this psalm. Uh, indeed, there are few Old Testament passages, if any, that are quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more than Psalm 110. Now, part of the reason, surely, is because of Jesus' own use of it multiple times. Uh, but also, as the, the 19th century Southern Presbyterian pastor William Swan Plummer put it, this psalm is so rich in doctrinal suggestions and declarations and implications that you could write a whole systematic theology based just off of this psalm. If Psalm 110 were the only psalm you possessed, you could not unpack and, and exhaust the riches for meditation, we might say, your entire life. The glory of Jesus revealed in this psalm is powerful. It is impactful as it was for the early church, may it be for us even this evening. Uh, for the sake of time, what I want us to do tonight is to, to see three things that David teaches us about Jesus in this psalm. First, that Jesus is the king. Second, that Jesus is the priest. And third, that Jesus is the victor. Let's think first about Jesus, who is the king. Now, to understand this psalm, you have to go back and recall a little bit of Bible history. You remember that after the Israelites conquered the land of Canaan, Joshua eventually dies. And the generation after Joshua rejects God for idols. And what does God do? Well, he begins to sell them into the hands of foreign enemies, foreign nations. And periodically they would cry out for help. And God would raise up judges to deliver them from their enemies. This cycle continues again and again and again until the days of Samuel who judges the people, and yet you remember that toward the end of his ministry, when his sons are, are beginning to judge, and they're, they're horrible judges, they're, they're unfaithful judges, the people come and demand that Samuel give them a king, just like all the other nations. 
Now, this request in of itself was not a sinful request. It wasn't sinful because we see in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God himself laying down provisions for when Israel would make such a request. But in the case of the Israelites there in 1 Samuel, we see in chapter 8 that that their asking for a king, like all the other nations, was in fact a rejection of God as their king. And so again, God disciplines them. God gives them Saul, right, who is uh, a king that they would take great pride in. Right? He's taller than any other person there in Israel. And yet ultimately, it's revealed that Saul is rejected as king. He himself is a disobedient man. Rejected by God. And so the Lord then does what? He sends Samuel to select David, a man after his own heart. And though it takes some time for David to rise to the throne, yet in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what do we see? But God coming to David through Nathan the prophet, entering into a covenant with David. A covenant whereby God promises that he will establish David's house and his kingdom forever. That David will have a seed, an offspring, an heir, and God would raise up this offspring after him from his own body, and God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now it's that covenant and those promises of a coming king that are in view here in Psalm 110. Certainly David is writing this psalm right on the backside of receiving those promises from God. David hears God say, as it were, to his offspring, sit at my right hand, verse 1, until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh, the Lord, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What is the right hand? Well, the right hand was the place of honor and authority, uh, the place of participation in rule. God is saying that David seeing David's seed would reign as king with him over the people of God. David's seed would conquer all of his and his people's enemies. But notice what David calls his offspring. David calls him, and this was the point that Jesus is trying to make, David calls him my Lord, Adonai in the Hebrew. Now how could David's son, David's seed, David's offspring, this human, also be David's Lord? Only, this was what Jesus was trying to get them to see, only if David's son was more than merely a man, but is also God himself. Not just David's son, but God's son. Jesus was trying to tell the Pharisees, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am David's son. I am the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, but I am more than that. As David himself realized and taught in Psalm 110, I am David's Lord. Yes, I am fully human, as you will see here in a moment when you kill me in a few days from when Jesus said those words, but I am also fully divine. I am one with the Father, yet distinct from the Father. Isn't this exactly what Gabriel told Mary in Luke chapter 1 when he announced that Mary would soon be pregnant with the the Son of God by the Holy Spirit? Do you remember these words? He says to her, he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. There's that language of the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. 
But then Mary humbly asks, uh, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And what does Gabriel say? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child within you will be called the Son of God. The virgin conception of which we heard this morning, the virgin conception ensures and and proves the deity of Jesus. And as the God-man, he is born, just as the wise men recognized, as the king, the king of the Jews. But not just the Jews, right? What does Jesus tell us at the end of Matthew's gospel? Because of his humbling himself to take human form, because of his obedience unto death, the Father raised him from the dead never to die again, and did what? Gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. The rejected by man, Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is reigning as the God-man over all creation, even now, for the good of his people, the church. I don't know how you grew up spiritually, religiously, denominationally. I don't know what sort of theology you had as you grew up, but I know for me, the idea that Jesus was the king now was foreign to what I was taught as a youth, right? Jesus was going to be the king in the millennium, right? When he came again, like that's when Jesus's kingship would, would happen and take place. And it wasn't really until college that I remember being taught, wait a minute, Jesus is the king now. He reigns and rules now at God's right hand. You see, in the New Testament, every time you read of of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, where are they getting that from? From Psalm 110. And when does Jesus take his seat at God's right hand? It's when he ascended up into heaven after his resurrection. Jesus himself quotes this psalm again before Caiaphas when he's being interrogated. Uh, And he tells the Jewish leaders, you will see me sitting at the right hand of power, Matthew 26. And in Peter, in Acts chapter 2, on his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he quotes from this psalm again when he says, look, it's not that David wasn't the one who ascended on high. No, but it was the one of whom David wrote. It was Jesus who was exalted to the right hand of God. This language of sitting down is symbolic of this glorious reality that Jesus has finished the task that was given him to do on earth. And now he has been granted to sit on the throne prepared for him by God. He has been exalted higher than the angels, says Hebrews chapter 1. And he is now reigning over his mediatorial kingdom. The kingdom, not that is his by virtue of the fact that he is God, right? but the, the kingdom that is his by virtue of the fact that he is the God-man. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the mediator. He has been given the name above every name. And even now, he continues to do his work as a king in his state of exaltation. But before we think about that ongoing work, let's move to the second point. The second thing that David wants to teach us about Jesus, not only is he the king, but he is also the priest. In verse 4, David tells us of another saying of Yahweh to the Lord, to Adonai. This time, it's not merely a promise but it's God swearing an oath. The Lord's changeless decree is this, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is incredible. It may not be incredible to us because we're sort of used to it and familiar, but if you were a Jew, 
You would say, wait a minute, you just told me he's a king seated at the right hand of God, and now you're telling me he's a priest? You see, because in Israel, priests and kings, they were never the same people. The, the priestly line in, in David's day would have been the tribe of Judah. The, excuse me, the kingly line, the, the priestly line was the tribe of Levi, the Aaronic priesthood. And when kings tried to act like priests, it did not go well for them. Go read in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 when King Uzziah, in his pride, he goes into the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense, which was only allowable for the priests to do. And what happened to King Uzziah? Well, God struck him with leprosy. He remained a leper until his death. We spoke, Carl spoke of his death even this morning. Uzziah, as a king, tried to be a priest. And God said, no, this is not the way it ought to be. And yet now, here is God saying that the Messiah, the Christ, David's son and David's Lord, will also be a priest. But notice that his priesthood is not a priesthood after the order of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. Do you remember Melchizedek? He sort of appears out of nowhere in Genesis chapter 14, after Abram, Abraham had rescued his nephew Lot from the Canaanite kings. And, and Moses tells us that on Abraham's way back home, uh, Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem, uh, and who was also a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek appears out of the blue and, and he meets Abraham. And Abraham pays tithes, tithes to Melchizedek tithes out of all the, the spoils of the battle that they had just won, Melchizedek receives a tenth, and Melchizedek gives Abram bread and wine and blesses Abraham. And the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I wish that I could go back and, and ask the first readers, the first singers of this psalm, what did you think when you saw the name Melchizedek in this psalm? Right? Because the only other place you read about Melchizedek is Genesis 14. What did you think? And what went through your head? And what sort of questions did you ask your Bible study teachers? Right? Now we, again, on this side of the incarnation, we have an explanation, don't we, for this incredible enigma that we find here in Psalm 110 because we have the book of Hebrews, particularly chapter 7, that is a, this long exposition of how Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You see, if, if David was a type and a foreshadowing of Jesus' kingly office, Melchizedek was a type and a foreshadowing of Jesus' priestly office. How? Well, first, the author of Hebrews tells us by the translation of his name. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And he was the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. Second, by the fact that Melchizedek in Genesis 14 has no genealogy. Again, he sort of comes out of nowhere. No father, no mother, no beginning of days recorded, no end of life recorded. But he has a priesthood that is eternal, says the author of Hebrews. A priesthood that's never abrogated in the scriptures. As we see here in Psalm 110, there is still this Melchizedekian priesthood sort of somewhere out there. And the Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But third, this Melchizedekian priesthood is 
even better than the Aaronic priesthood. And, and the author of Hebrews sort of takes us through this journey, and he says, look, you know, Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek, the text tells us. Well, Levi was sort of in the loins of Abraham when he paid these tithes. Right? A couple generations removed. But, so in a sense, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, the author tells us. And clearly that means that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. And he says, and also, don't forget that Melchizedek blesses Abraham, not the other way around. And, and we know that the greater blesses the lesser. And so the author to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus has come, setting aside the weak and useless Aaronic priesthood and has brought in a better hope based upon his indestructible life. His permanent priesthood has set aside the temporary priesthood of Aaron. You see, says the author of the Hebrews, unlike the Aaronic priest, Jesus became a priest with an oath. The oath of God, unlike the Aaronic priest who kept on dying, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently, forever. And therefore, says Hebrews 7, listen to these verses, therefore Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the people, since Jesus did this once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness at high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." You see, in the Old Testament, the, the daily and annually sacrifices of bulls and, and goats were a reminder of sin. They were a reminder to the people that, that these sacrifices really never cleanse your conscience. They never really do what you need to be done for you. And so what happens? Well, Hebrews tells us the priests keep standing daily, ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But Jesus having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, and they quote Psalm 110, sat down at the right hand of God. Do you see the, the glory? Do you see the majesty? Jesus, who is our king, is also our priest, who has made atonement for his people by offering himself as the perfect lamb of God, so that he is, as Hebrews 5.10 says, the source of eternal salvation. And we who trust in Jesus, we have confidence to enter the holy place by his blood. There is no more need for another offering for sin. Jesus' blood has cleansed us from all of our sin once and for all. The Lion King of the tribe of Judah is also at the same time the Lamb who was slain. Our lawgiver, the one who comes with authority is also our priest who comes with gentleness, is our intercessor who pleads with God for us. This priest, after the order of Melchizedek, he has completed his priestly work, and he is even now in heaven, standing at the right hand of God, pleading with God for us, ever living to minister to God on our behalf as a priest in heaven. And that brings us back to the third point, Jesus' ongoing work 
You see, what we see from his kingly work, from his priestly work, is that Jesus is the victor. He is the victor. Notice that in between these two declarations about the Messiah, from Yahweh to the Messiah, the king and the priest, David gives us this prophetic commentary about his ultimate victory over all of his enemies. Some of his enemies will become his friends, while some remain his foes. In verses 2 and 3, David speaks directly to Yahweh, or excuse me, directly to his Lord, while in verses 5 to 7, David speaks to Yahweh, to God, about his Lord. But first, notice verse 1, and notice how this oracle of God to the Messiah contains the clearest note of victory. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, what is this image of a footstool? Well, it's an image of utter and complete subjugation, as well as an image of complete rest from battle and from weariness. Back in Joshua chapter 10, there's this story where after Joshua had led Israel in victory over five Amorite kings, uh, that's the victory in which God caused the sun to stand still in the middle of the day. Joshua brings these five kings, they were hidden in a cave, he brings them out of a cave, and he causes them to lie on the ground, and he brings all of his soldiers, and he says, I want you to put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they do so, and Joshua declares, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies who you fight. See, Joshua is doing sort of in, in, in living color what David is saying will be done by all of the enemies of Jesus Christ. Jesus is on his throne, and the Lord God, through his Messiah, is making all of his enemies his footstool, putting them under his feet. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus has subjected all rule, all authority, all power, whether angelic or human, to himself. And even now he is reigning Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is the victor. He will be victorious. He has already won the victory, and he is accomplishing that victory even now until the day that he comes back. Now we see in verse 3 that some of his enemies will become his friends. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The text literally reads, your people will be free will offerings. When Christ comes in power to those the Father has given him before the foundation of the world, we will freely consecrate and give ourselves to Jesus. We will walk in the beauty of holiness. That last part of verse 3 is incredibly confusing, so much so, so that the ESV has a little text note that says, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. We don't really know what this means. The the Hebrew literally literally reads, uh, it it says, uh, to you, the do, your youth. Those are the three words. Or to to you, the do of your youth. And and so it can either mean that that, that Christ's people, his youth, are like the do in in majesty and in number. That's how the New American Standard translates it. Or as it seems the ESV takes it, Christ's youth, his youthfulness, his youthful vigor, the other Use of this Hebrew word is in Ecclesiastes, and it means this, the youthfulness, the, the childhood, the, the young, the state of being young. It will be yours, renewed and restored each morning, just like the dew is on the grass morning by morning. The point 
Either way is that undoubtedly Jesus will win the victory. He will undoubtedly accomplish his task of defeating his enemies. And some of those enemies, as we see there in verse 3, will become his friends. You will offer yourself freely to him, but others of his enemies will remain his enemies, yet yet will be conquered nonetheless. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. Here David again is talking to Yahweh. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That last phrase, again, it's obscure, but it probably refers to what we saw in Isaiah 42, verse 4, when we read, He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. Here's this image of a king who stoops down to drink, to be refreshed, to be strengthened, so that he might win the victory all the way to the end. Jesus will win the victory over you one way or the other. Either you will bow the knee, being made willing in the day of his power, or you will be forced to bow the knee. You will be shattered on the day of his wrath. And if you know his grace, if you have been made willing in the day of his power, then do you see that your victory is in his victory? Or to put it another way, his victory is your victory. Isn't it interesting? When our, when our favorite college football or baseball or basketball team wins the championship, don't we celebrate as if we won the championship? You're like, you had nothing to do with that. Although the coaches and players are like, man, if it weren't for the crowds, if it weren't for the fans, like we couldn't have done this. They sort of get it, don't we? But, but we celebrate as if it's ours because in a sense, maybe it is. But Jesus' victory is our victory. 1 Corinthians 15, again, Paul tells us that the final enemy that Jesus will conquer is the enemy of death. On the last day, Jesus will return and every foe, whether human or spiritual, will be defeated. All sin, all misery, all death will be defeated. And so, again, the author of Hebrews tells us we await that second coming When Jesus, who is offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. His victory is our victory. As you struggle with sin day by day, as you struggle in relationships, as you struggle with the effects of sin, the misery of sin, remember the victory that is proclaimed to us here in Psalm 110. Continue to offer yourself as a free will offering to the Lord. Give all that you are to him, submitting to him as your king, finding confidence and rest and hope in him as your priest who continues to intercede for you, who loves you, who has given his Holy Spirit to you from the right hand in heaven, exalted on high, poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we might walk in submission to his kingly rule. Brothers and sisters, there's so much here. Will you meditate upon this psalm? Will you meditate upon the glory of King Jesus, Priest Jesus, Victorious Jesus, so that no matter what happens to you this week, you will know that this is a sure and a steadfast word. God has promised. God has sworn an oath. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is the victor. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for giving to us these glorious words. Lord, they are, our understanding of them is, is but a, a shadow of their reality. We desire 
to understand more and more your word, your truth, your person, your work. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray, and make us more like yourself. Thank you for making us willing, making us a free will offering in the day of your power. Would you make us willing more and more to walk in your ways by your Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us from the right hand of the power of the majesty on high. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace to us. In your name we pray. Amen.